Nima Okay, they work you hard. This is a full-on day. I hope you're um, surviving. We're going to uh, dive into, uh, back to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to try and do Daniel's chapter 2 and 3. That will get to chapter 4. may have to leave you to read that on your own, but you'll get a flavor. But before we get into that, um, I, let me start with a principle or an idea or something I'd love you to take away and think a little bit more about. Um, in the first session, we were thinking about the idea of typology and, and, and understanding the stories that our story and how we connect and all that. In this session, I, I want to persuade you or to try and encourage you um, to think a little bit more about the theme of kingdom and to preach the gospel in terms of kingdom, in terms of the kingdom of God. So I think if we said to most of us, and I don't know hardly any of you, so I'm not speaking out of any knowledge I'm speaking out of my experience of what I see around and my own experience of ministry. I think most of us, if you say, what is the gospel, we would, argue, we would answer it in pretty individualistic terms. In God loves you, you're a sinner, but God sent his son to die for you so that you could be forgiven, so you could have eternal life, so you could go to be with him forever. Um, that, that would be our definition of the gospel. Those things are all true. I'm not about to deny any of those things. But interesting, when Jesus preached the gospel, at the start of Mark's gospel, this was the summary. The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. I find it really fascinating to compare my summary of the gospel, my instinctive summary of the gospel, and what Jesus preached. And it's not just Jesus, you go through the book of Acts, and everywhere there is kingdom language, kingdom, kingdom. And the reason I want to try and persuade you, and you'll have seen already from Daniel 7 and Daniel 2 and the stuff we did this morning, which has set this up really well, that kingdom is one of Daniel's big themes. And I want to just explore with you for a few minutes before we get into the detail of Daniel 2, why that might be something which would really help the people that we're preaching to. Um, so let's... let's um, Think about the kingdom. It's interesting just in Mark 1 when Jesus says, the time has come. I mean, that's like a, that's a like crackling with anticipation, isn't it? The time has come. What time? Well, the time that everything's been building to, right? The time that God has promised. It's now, Jesus says. What? Now is the time when the kingdom of God has come. What Jesus is announcing when he talks about the kingdom of God is a revolution. It's revolutionary language. So do you hear the people sing? Singing the songs of angry men? It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drum, there's a life about to start when tomorrow comes. Now look, you may not be a Les Miserables fan. I am. <laughs> But there's something stirring about revolution. When someone announces changes here, now is the time when things are about to change. We long for a revolution. And what Jesus announces when he says the kingdom of God has come near, he is announcing now is the time of revolution. So here's a very quick um, Bible overview. The Bible is a story of two revolutions. Two revolutions. 
God creates the world. It's beautiful. It's perfect. He creates humanity to live under him as king. Then comes the first revolution when humanity said, we don't want you to be God. We'll be God. And so we set up a rival kingdom. So now you have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. You have two kingdoms. And the kingdom of God is the kingdom of light and freedom and joy. And the kingdom of this world, which we thought was going to be about freedom, actually becomes the kingdom of slavery and death because you can't overthrow God because he's God. And so now you have this kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God, and yet God hasn't finished. God has a plan, and his plan is the second revolution, and he whispers and he promises, there's someone coming, there's someone coming. There's someone coming who will bring a kingdom, one like a son of man who will come and who will be given all sovereign authority. There's a kingdom coming. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's someone coming. And then on the banks of Galilee, Jesus says, the time has come. Do you not see? That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the great plan of God when the kingdom of God invaded the kingdom of this world. It was an act of war. I once preached a carol service um, sermon and I started by saying Christmas is an act of war because that's what's going on. Kingdom of God invades the kingdom of this world, but not in a hostile move, but in a move of supreme love, not to destroy this world, but to save this world, to bring people out of darkness into light. Now, the reason this matters is because our culture is teaching our kids and our teenagers and all of us a very different view. Here's the view. You have your life. And we to imagine that your life is like a jigsaw. You know how, jig- of course you know how jigsaws work, right? Um, it's your jigsaw, right? And you, you're building your life. And, and, and the game that we're all playing is who can build the best jigsaw. That's the game we're playing as human beings. And you go through life and you look at different bits and you say, do I want this bit in my jigsaw? Is this part of, do I want this in my life? You know, do I, do I want to be sporty? Is that, is that what I want? Do I, yes, I think I'll have some sport in my jigsaw. No, I don't want that. Do I want to be a knitter? Do I want knitting? And we go through life and we're putting things in. Do I want a degree? Do I want to get married? And we're looking, we're trying to build the best jigsaw we can. That's the game. And then you meet Jesus and along comes a preacher who says, listen, Jesus can change your life. Jesus can give you forgiveness and he can set you free from shame and he can give you life forever. And you look at Jesus and you go, do I want Jesus in my life? Will he make my life better? Do I want him in my jigsaw or not? And we're desperately trying to persuade people, come on, you need Jesus, you've got to have him. And people look at Jesus and some people go, oh, maybe, yeah, maybe he will. Maybe he will. Maybe, maybe I do want a bit of religion in my life. Maybe I do want a bit of that. But many people will go, I don't want Jesus. Right, here is the message we have got to communicate. I, I go and do university missions, I do one every year, and I, I say this every, to students all the time. Jesus is not interested in being part of your jigsaw. He's not interested. Jesus does not want to be a part of your life. Jesus is calling you to be part of his jigsaw. Jesus is calling you to be part of what he is doing. 
You see, all too often, I think we just imagine, I've got my plans, I'm building my life, I'm doing my degree, I'm doing whatever it is I'm doing, and I say, Jesus, I've got this plan, could you come and help me? Could you come over here and help me do my plan? And we do this as pastors, right? I'm building my church, I've got a plan, I've got this strategy, okay, Jesus, could you come and help me build this great empire that I'm building? And Jesus says, no. How about you come and do what I'm doing? And what Jesus is doing is building his kingdom, What Jesus is doing is establishing his kingdom. And so what we are calling people to is not, hey, why don't you have Jesus? It's, can you see what Jesus is doing? And then can you see the privilege of being involved in that? And the jigsaw that Jesus is building, this kingdom that Jesus has established and one day will complete, this kingdom is is magnificent. And it makes my jigsaw, you know those little kind of Mickey Mouse four-piece jigsaws? My first jigsaw. My little life looks pathetic. Even the very best human jigsaw you could ever build, it's rubbish compared to what Jesus is doing. And we've got to get people to see that a vision of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is worth investing everything, and that's what Daniel saw. So come with me to Daniel chapter 2, and let's, with that in our minds, kind of work our way through. And I really want to commend to you that that sense of when we're, when we're preaching, and when we're preaching narrative particularly, that we're tying it to the kingdom. We're showing people the bigness of what's going on, and not just calling people to an individual, hey, you could be like Daniel too. You could be part of what Daniel's part of. You see how that's a bigger call? So that's, that's what we're going to do. Um, and the reason this sets up so well in Daniel is because already we've begun to see you've got the kingdom of this world, Babylon, and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. So let's see that, and we'll see some of the contrasts as we go. And we're just going to walk our way through. Um, and as we start chapter 2, I think it's worth us just seeing that if you opt to be part of this, the kingdom of this world you will be miserable, ultimately. Um, You will be frustrated because you'll find that there are things you don't know. So let's, let's get into detail. Look at this. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. Oh, look, right? You've got to notice the detail. When you're preaching narrative, look at the detail. Don't go fast, go slow. He's the most powerful man on the planet. He has everything, everything. He speaks and it happens. But he can't sleep. He's troubled. There's something that's eating away at him. He has a dream and he doesn't know what it means. There's trouble. Because in the kingdom of this world, you will find yourself troubled and you will find yourself at an end of your understanding. Okay, let's keep going on. It's not just that he's troubled. He then becomes super paranoid. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me. I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, we'll interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream 
was and interpret it, I will, have cut, I will cut you to pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. There's seven. You can see them sort of looking at each other going, hmm. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king said, I'm certain you're trying to gain time because you realize that this is why I firmly decide. If you do not tell me the dream, there's only one penalty for you. You've conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. And then the wise men, the astrologers just say, well, we, that's impossible. No one can do that. Only God can do that. And suddenly he becomes paranoid. His most trusted advisors, he doesn't trust anymore. He becomes increasingly isolated. This is what power in the kingdom of this world looks like. It's troubling. It brings you paranoid and ultimately makes you completely irrational. So his plan, once this all happens, his plan is, fine, let's just kill all the wise people. Now, I've never been the leader of a superpower, but I'm reasonably confident that is not a good strategy. Let's get all the cleverest, wisest people together and kill them. That's really going to help our kingdom get going. And yet he's become irrational. And this kingdom of this world, human power, has this tendency towards it. We were saying this in Daniel 7, right? The viciousness, the the harshness. The cruelty, the irrationality of human power. Contrast that to Daniel. So they come to look for Daniel because he's one of the wise men and they decide um, to put him to death. But Daniel, I haven't got time to read all this, but Daniel speaks with tact, he's gentle, he doesn't panic. There is just a confidence, there's a courage, there's a peace. I love what he says. He asked the king for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Do you see the contrast? If you get wrapped up in the kingdom of this world, then you will experience a life of stress and struggle and irrational fear. But when you know the God of heaven, there is a peace. And Daniel speaks with calmness. But not with a kind of complacent arrogance. Do you see what he does next? He then gets his friends together and he says, we need to pray. We need to pray. And they plead for mercy from the God of heaven that he would reveal this mystery, that they would not be executed. And so God reveals the dream. What a contrast between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And so Daniel praises God. We haven't got time to do that in great detail now. So in verse 24, then Daniel now has this wisdom, this knowledge of the dream. And he says to Arioch, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king. I'll interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I found a man. You can imagine Arioch being a little bit, um, I have found a man. <laughs> I found a man who can tell the king what his dream means. He's obviously expecting a promotion. This is good. He's taking credit for what God has done. So the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, no. No. Daniel is absolutely determined that he will not get sucked into this power game of the kingdom of this world. 
He will not begin to grasp at little scraps of power. This is his moment, right? This is his moment to establish himself as the great wise man of Babylon. He rejects it. He says, no, I'm not playing that game. I don't want your trappings. I don't want to be part of that world of trouble and paranoia and irrationality. I don't want to be part of that. No, I can't interpret your dream, but God can. There is a God in heaven. He reveals mysteries. He's told me it. Just as a side note, can I say, as pastors, we need to be so careful that we attribute God's work to God, not to us. It is very tempting. It's very tempting when we have some growth or when something goes well to just want people to know and to want people to be impressed. Don't you fall into that trap? When you fall into that trap, you're getting sucked into the kingdom of this world. And once you get sucked into the kingdom of this world, what will happen is you will become more and more paranoid and irrational because your identity is tied to how well you have done. And so now someone's church down the road begins to grow. And rather than rejoicing that people are becoming Christians, instead you're going, yeah, well, they've probably, probably distorted the gospel. They're probably doing something wrong. Isn't it weird? If you're a pastor... I'm almost certain you will have had that moment where you feel jealous of someone else because God has blessed them. Man, our hearts are dark places, aren't they? Here is Daniel facing the most powerful man here and says, it's not me. I did not do this. The God of heaven revealed it. That's what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. So he's shown your dreams and your visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed at these. And he begins to explain the vision. And we saw this this morning, so we don't have to read this. We've been through this um, with Robin this morning. I just want to pick up a couple of things. There's the statues, head of gold, body of silver, legs of bronze, feet of iron and clay. And then he says, now let me tell you what it means. And uh, as Robin was saying this morning, you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar, can't you? Uh, you are the head of gold. That sounds excellent. Yes, I think that must be right. Daniel, you are very wise. This is an excellent interpretation of my dream. Then come the two most terrifying words Nebuchadnezzar's ever heard in his life. After you. After you will come another kingdom. That's terrifying. Because Nebuchadnezzar, remember what his wise men keep saying to him. O king, live forever. O king, live forever. And Daniel's basically saying to him, and yes, and you'll die. And there'll be another kingdom. And then another one. Because that's what life is like in the kingdom of this world. That's what power is like. It's a slippery thing. It doesn't last. Do you remember that game? I don't know if you... I imagine you play it over here. The party game for little kids. The game where you put a piece of chocolate in the middle of the room. It's the cruelest game ever. Right, you put a piece of chocolate in the middle of the room, gloves, hat, scarf. Am I getting any of Yeah. Great. And then you sit around, you roll a dice. You got, if you roll a six, you get to run up and you get to put on the hat and the scarf and the gloves. Like, yeah, it's my turn. You get a knife and fork. and you, It's so stressful, right? And you're desperately trying to get the chocolate and you're like, ha, ah, And you're sliving. It's like, ah, oh, nearly there. And then someone else rolls a six. Six. They come running up and they rip the scarf off your neck. And you, they go, it's my turn. And, you're, and you have to go back to your little place. And it's just so... De- It's an awful game. It's a terrible way. What would be much better would be to break the bar of chocolate into as many pieces as kids are, give every kid one piece, and then we can all have a, we can all chill out. It's so stressful. That's what the kingdom of this world is like. 
You get your little moment of time. Babylon, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you've rolled a six. You're the king of Babylon. Have a happy time. Yay, hanging God is Babylon. Aren't we having fun? And then someone else will roll a six. Here come the Medes and the Persians. Off you go, Nebuchadnezzar. Your time's done. They have a little bit of time, but that doesn't last. Then it's Greece. Then it's Rome. And the empires keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And that's what the kingdom of this world is like. And if you invest your life in the kingdom of this world, that's what you get. Yes, you will probably, if, you, if you're lucky, you will get a moment where you roll a six and things go well and suddenly everything is like awesome and you feel on top of the world. But the trouble is you won't really be able to enjoy it because you know that around the corner someone else is rolling the dice and sooner or later they'll roll a six and they'll come running up and your time will be over. You will shuffle off the stage and it will all be gone. Which means you can't even enjoy. Because the thing is, when you're eating the chocolate in the middle of the circle, you don't even enjoy it. Because you know it won't last. That's the folly, right? That's what this dream is showing. But then there was something else, wasn't there? Nebuchadnezzar saw something else in his dream. It was a little rock. A little rock that strikes the statue and the statue crumbles, but the rock becomes a huge mountain and fills the earth. Verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. There is a kingdom that is not like the kingdoms of this world. There is a kingdom of God. A kingdom of God that will not ever end. That brings all other kingdoms to an end, but will itself endure forever. Jesus said... The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's the story that we're calling people to be involved in, right? A kingdom that's been established, a kingdom that will last forever. We've got to get people to see this is so much bigger than just God loves you and he forgives your sin. This is God calls you to be part of his everlasting kingdom where you don't have to be part of this kingdom of paranoia and fear and irrationality and stress, but you get to be part of this kingdom where there is peace and confidence in the king. When it's not about you, it's about him. And you're set free to be the person that God has made you to be and you use the gift God's given you and you can celebrate other people's goodness because we're all building the same kingdom. We're all part of the same kingdom. And King Nebuchadnezzar is impressed He falls prostrate before Daniel. It's all sounding pretty good. Verse 47, the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. Sounds like Nebuchadnezzar is getting it, doesn't it? And king, uh, king may place Daniel in a high position, lavish many gifts on him, makes him ruler, blah, blah, blah. Um, sorry, not blah, 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 I don't mean that. Um, verse 49, moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, chief ministers over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. It sounds great. Nebuchadnezzar seems to acknowledge that God is the revealer of mysteries. Daniel's in a high position. It all sounds great. What's the next thing that Nebuchadnezzar does? 
He made an image, a statue. What did he make his statue out of? Gold. What did he make the head out of? Gold. What did he make the body out of? Gold. Legs? Gold. Feet? Gold. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar says, no, Daniel, you're wrong. The vision of Daniel chapter 2 will not come to pass. Babylon will last. That's what the statue of chapter 3 means. Gold from top to bottom. I am king. He rejects the vision. He rejects what God has clearly shown him. And he establishes himself. And then you get an insight into his true colors. And you see how vicious the kingdom of this world is. And if we had time to read the whole chapter, we don't. I'm going to assume you vaguely know it. There are some very funny details in it. And I think it's designed to be funny. Um, so the, the repetition... Right, let me just read from verse 2. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for a dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaims, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of God that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so it goes on. It keeps repeating these instruments. And there's this kind of repeated mockery of this ridiculous performance. And yet what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he is trying to unite his nation. In fact, he's trying to unite the whole world in common worship. You do understand, right? If you can get everybody to worship the same thing, you will create a very powerful unity. And so he's trying to get them to worship this statue, which is essentially Babylon. And interesting, he uses music. Music is a powerful moment, a powerful um, binder together of people. It's a bit like you can almost imagine it like lullabies. You know lullabies? Um, Lullabies are weird, aren't they? You know, rockabye baby on the treetop. It's weird. I, I always thought lullabies were kind of a gentle, lovely sort of thing that, um, to enjoy. Then I became a parent, and I realized that actually lullabies are, are like a, a very aggressive um, weapon. You see, when, when my little kid, you know, here he is, won't go to sleep, what do I do? I sing him a lullaby. Rockabye baby on the treetop, when the wind flies, the cradle will rock. If he doesn't go to sleep by the end, what do I do? I sing it again. Squeeze a little tighter. Rock up my baby on the treetop. Because here's the point. The lullaby has to win. Right? The lullaby has to win. The lullaby keeps being sung until you give in and fall asleep. Now, the words of the lullaby are horrendous. Rock up my baby on the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bough breaks, the cradle will fall. And down will come baby, cradling all. It's a horrific thing to be singing. If you don't worry about the words, you just have to be lulled. I wrote a second verse to that. Turns out it's not that difficult. 
Poor little baby lying in the mud, crossed by a branch and covered in blood. The bump on your head is starting to swell. Night, night, my darling, I hope you sleep well. It's like, what are we singing? And it doesn't matter. It's horrendous and it's awful, but it doesn't matter because the lullaby just has to win. We live in a world that is singing us lullabies. That is what Nebuchadnezzar, the zither, flute, pipe, lyre, all the rest of it, is lulling people. You just have to obey. You have to bow down and worship. And that's what our culture is doing. It's singing you lullabies all the time. If you listen to the words, they're horrendous. Here's the atheist lullaby. I am so clever. I have a big brain. We do not need God. I can explain. We came from monkeys, they came from slime. Stop worrying about God and have a good time. And we sing this lullaby. That's horrific if it's true. The implications of what that means for who we are and what we're about is horrendous. But don't worry about the words. You just listen to the lullaby. It doesn't matter. Some clever scientist somewhere just tells me I can get on with my life fine. And these lullabies are being sung to us all the time. You deserve to have a good life. It's your life. You've got to take everything. It's all about you. You're worth it. Pursue your goals. Follow your dreams. Live your best life. Follow your heart. Don't let anyone tell you you can't be. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do this. You do. All the time, these lullabies are being sung. That's how the kingdom of the world works. And we need to understand that the lullaby is horrible, and it will win, and it will keep being sung until we submit except for three men. Three men. Oh, man. Look at verse verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. (laughs) Honestly. Um, Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown into the blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hands? What comes next, I think, is some of the most moving words in the Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Rage from Nebuchadnezzar. Sheer confidence. Gentle confidence from the people who belong to God's kingdom. Stunning. Nebuchadnezzar is just furious. He orders the furnace to be hotter. The guys who throw them in, they die. So Nebuchadnezzar is giving up his own soldiers. He's such a cruel, harsh king. And then you know what happens. 
Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He replied, look, I see four men walking, walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Kingdom of the world, Babylon, the king is a tyrant, and the king is out to destroy and to force you to conform. Violence, like the beasts we saw, all of it tied up in Nebuchadnezzar. But what about, the, what about the king of this kingdom? What about the king of the kingdom of God? Well, here's the king who sees his people in trouble and comes into the fire to be with them. Come on, tell me that isn't the king you want. A king who sees his people in the danger and enters the fire itself. That's the king we serve. The God of heaven who has established his kingdom is the God who does not set it up from a distance. He's not a God who sends a, a, a kind of... He's not a God who sends someone who will come on his behalf. He's the God who comes in person to walk in the fire with his people, to walk with us in the danger. Emmanuel, God with us. You want a king? You want to choose a king? Choose a king who will come with you, who will stand next to you in the fire. Choose a king who will enter the danger for you, who will fight the battle on your behalf. Choose the king who goes ahead of you. Choose the king who even gives his life for you. Choose that king. That's the kingdom of God. I don't know how I can show you more clearly the difference between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. The king who doesn't come to woo you with lullabies, but who comes to win you with truth. The king who doesn't throw you away when he's done with you, but walks with you, through you, through the fire and out the other side into new creation forever. That's the kingdom I want to give my life for. That's the, kingdom who, who, that's the king who I'm ready to say, world, even if, even if you throw me in prison, even if you do all of this stuff, we want you to know, we'll not serve your gods. We'll not bow down. And I do think that we're probably entering a time, and many people have been saying this, but I think it's probably true, when we're going to need more courage. We're going to, have, we're going to need more confidence. And the only way confidence comes is by seeing the king of the kingdom. The only way confidence comes is by spotting the lullabies of this world, of hearing the lies that aren't true, and helping our people to see the beauty of Jesus. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the fire. Nebuchadnezzar praises God. And then the king promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He, he just can't stop himself, right? This is what he does. He goes, oh, wow, you're actually quite amazing. Your God's impressive. I'll make you really powerful in my kingdom. He doesn't get it. It's not about your kingdom. It's not about human power. It's not about elevating the most important positions. Because chapter 4, if you want it in one minute, is... 
Nebuchadnezzar needs to go from there to the lowest place. You see, he still thinks he's king, and he still thinks, yeah, I'll promote you, I'll promote you, I'll promote you. And it's only when he gets to the end of chapter 4, when he's humbled, when he's been turned into an animal, that finally he recognizes the Lord as God most high. And so at the end of chapter 4, in verse 34, then I praised the God most high, I honored and glorified him who lives, look, him who lives forever. He's finally got it. It's not me. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? What have you done? Nebuchadnezzar's got it. But it's taken three chapters. So I guess this afternoon, I, I, I just want us to marvel at our king. <laughs> I want to say to you, do you see that this is what we're part of? And when we're tempted to look at the kingdom of this world, and sometimes I look at London and I think, people seem to be having such a great time. I remember talking to my parents-in-law who aren't Christians. They've got, they got a decent amount of money. They go on holiday all the time. They're in Hawaii at the moment. They send us pictures. It's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we had a conversation with them once, and we said... But you're not, I mean, you're not happy, are you, really, deep down? And they said, yeah, yeah, we, we are. We're really happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you're not deep down. And they said, no, we are. You see, they are. <laughs> because they're in the middle of the circle eating their chocolate. The only way they will ever understand the danger that they're in is when they see the kingdom. <laughs> that they're part of a kingdom that will fall. They're part of a kingdom that will not last. They're part of a kingdom that will forever be punished by God in hell. That's what we're calling people to. That's the great revolution that we're involved in. So why don't we just take a moment. I'm going to lead us in prayer. And I'd love you to take some time just to praise God for a king who would come so near. A king who would come even to save Heavenly Father, I, I imagine that some of us in this room are really feeling pretty under fire at the moment. Perhaps we've, um, we're envious of the people we see around us, the world around us. Perhaps our church feels really small and really frustrating, just not very impressive. Perhaps we feel disappointed and like failures. Father, I pray that you'd help us to lift our eyes and to see the kingdom. To see that the kingdom has been, has been inaugurated in Jesus. The kingdom has come. That kingdom of God that brings all other kingdoms to an end, it's growing right now all over this world. The kingdom is advancing. And one day it will bring all kingdoms to an end and it will itself last forever. Father, please let us see the beauty of our king, the power of his kingdom, and the privilege of being his servants. In Jesus' name, amen. Nima.